The following audio is from Amaze KC. More information about Amaze KC is available online at www.amazekc.com. So last week we looked at Exodus and we talked about his grandeur and the grandeur of God in Exodus and, and the bigness of God there. And we primarily looked at chapters 1 through 19 and saw his grandeur in chapters 1 through 19. To sum it up, what we saw is that God displayed his greatness through miracles, through plagues, through, and through provision in order to establish his people. Through the whole process, slaying Egyptian gods, idols, and kings one by one while proving that he is the one true God, the one true king, and that no idol compares to him. And so we unpacked this in the first 19 chapters, that he established his people in freedom from Egypt and preserved them to Mount Sinai where he met with them in a grand display of his grandeur. On Mount Sinai, when his people arrived, he called them to the side of the mountain and in thunder and in lightning and in earthquakes, he spoke to them and to Moses and he declared to them, remember, I brought you out of Egypt. Remember me picking you up and carrying you through the desert. And see now my grandeur. And see now my grace. And so what we want to do today is to go back and we want to look at God's grace through this process as well. We're going to look at God's grace in the book of Exodus in three stories. So we're going to miss a lot of Exodus, but we want to look at three stories in Exodus and God's grace. The first two we'll look at a bit briefer, and the third one we'll land on a little bit more. To begin that, we want to look at chapter 8, particularly the story that takes place in chapter 7 through 11. And what we want to see in the first story is God's grace in the plagues. God's grace in the midst of the plagues. Particularly to those who were not his children, to those who were not his people. That there was grace even displayed to those who were not his. Particularly to a man by the name of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Think with me just for a moment the fact that there are ten plagues. There are ten plagues. One by one, God slaying the idols and slaying Pharaoh while preserving Pharaoh at the same time. One by one, leading to the tenth plague, the the grandest plague, if you will, when God took the firstborn of every household within Egypt. That God literally sent an angel of death into every home in Egypt that killed the firstborn child in the home. In order to free his people, to establish his people. But God did not begin with this drastic plague. He didn't start there with the slaying of life, but he began way back with the water turning to blood and flies and gnats, one by one, declaring to Pharaoh, let my people go. A display of grace, time and time again, let my people go. And Pharaoh refusing to embrace God's grace. So much so that I want you to look at verses, or excuse me, chapter 8. I want us to see in chapter 8 this idea of, of Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's hardness of heart. 8 verse 15. 
But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So if you went back and you read a little bit earlier in this chapter, the Niles turned to blood. Now Moses comes to him and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, I will do it. There's now been flies as well, by the way. There's flies everywhere. And Pharaoh goes, if you let the people, if I let the people go, will you remove the flies? And and Moses says, yes, God will remove the flies if you let the people go. And so Pharaoh says, okay, remove them. I'll let them go. So God removes the flies. And this is what happens. Pharaoh sees the flies gone and goes, oh, that's not so bad. And decides to hold on to the people of Israel and refuse God's grace. And then we see it again in verse 32. Look at verse 32 of chapter 8. The next plague comes, and in chapter 32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart in time and did not let the people go. In chapter 9, verses 34 through 35, but when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants, so that the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Chapter 10, verse 20. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Verse 27, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Over and over and over again, you have this situation when God comes and goes, let my people go through Moses, let my people go. And Pharaoh goes, okay, I'll let them go. This plague's too much. Take it away. I'll let them go. God removes the plague, and then Pharaoh hardens his heart and changes his mind again and refuses to embrace God's grace. And yet God continued to show him Grace, another chance, another chance, another chance. The chances ran out for Pharaoh. God closed his grasp, and he killed Pharaoh and brought down Egypt and freed his people. But but just, just pause with me for a moment and just contemplate the grace of God and his patience with you in your sin. Particularly, when you were not a believer. Or for some of you in the room who are not believers today. Right? If, if you are not a believer, not a follower of Jesus, you've not placed your hope and trust and faith in Jesus, it is his grace that has preserved you to this day and brought you to this place to declare to you his grace that you might embrace it. Scriptures say over and over again that he is patient. He is slow to anger. While he tarries, may we believe. While he waits, may we believe. He's brought you here. So if you're an unbeliever in Jesus, our hope is that today you would be a believer because we believe he's brought you here and established you and he holds you in his grace today. Would you trust his grace today? For those of us who are believers, who have trusted Jesus, who he has saved by his grace, May we not forget the grace of God that withheld us and sustained us in our rebellion before we embraced him. That brought us to hear the gospel time and time again. That gave us warning after warning. It's what he's giving to Pharaoh over and over again. Here's a warning. I'm God. You're not. Over and over again, a warning. So a warning doesn't seem very loving to me. Kind of seems like maybe the wrong approach. Give me grace, not warning. But don't you understand his warning was his grace? Just as a parent's warning to their child not to reach out and touch the flame is their grace to their child. It's love and it's grace to say, don't do that. It harms you. 
his warning to Pharaoh, let my people go, was an act of grace and love displayed. It's patience. He did that to us. He called us through patience and through his grace that we would trust and lean on him and know him. And then for you believers in the room, we're going to see this over and over again throughout this sermon. But how often have we been like Pharaoh? Where we have had sin pointed out in our hearts and there's been some form of, okay, just, just, okay, I'll, I'll confess, I'll repent. In fact, at one point, Pharaoh even said in, in verse, chapter 9, verse 27, I have sinned. And then the next thing that happens, he turns again and right back into his sin. Or may we be a people that see God's grace to us, that recognize his grace to us in the midst of our sin. If you're not a believer, may you trust today. May today's attendance at a worship gathering not simply be some merit that you brought forth like Pharaoh that says, I will do this if you'll do this for me, God. But may today actually be a moment of grace in your life that you hear who Jesus is, you trust who Jesus is, and it transforms you forever. May it not be lip service of repentance, but may it be a heart transformation because of the grace of Christ. We see this again in the second story that we want to look at, chapter 12. Chapter 12. In chapter 12, we have the story of the Passover. Perhaps the most commonly looked to story of God's grace in Exodus, and for many reasons rightly so. What a beautiful display of God's grace to the people of Israel here and a shadow of what's to come in Christ. I want us to read a few verses about the Passover here in chapter 12, and then I want to illustrate it for us. In chapter 12, verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Skip with me to verse 22. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the blood. Uh, the door, Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Verse 27, you shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he has passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt. This is the 10th plague, where God strikes down the firstborn in every house of Egypt, yet he comes to Moses and he comes to the people of Israel, his people. And in an act of supreme grace, he gives them a way for their children to live. His way is this, take, take a lamb, slaughter it, and take its blood and wipe it across your doorpost and wipe it across the lintel of your door. And when the angel of death comes past your house, it's exactly what he'll do 
pass your house. He won't enter and he won't strike, but he'll let you live. And so all across Goshen, right, the, the suburb, if you will, where the people of God lived, where the Israelites lived, all across Goshen, lambs were slaughtered that day. And blood was spilled and blood was spread across their doorways. And the food was prepared and we don't have time to go into the details about it. You can go back and look at, your, at it yourself and study the Passover some yourself. The food was prepared. The feast was prepared. The blood was spread across the door. They packed their bags because God's command to them was spread the blood, kill the lamb, spread the blood, prepare the feast, pack your bags for tonight I'm freeing you. Tonight I'm freeing you. Death will not strike your house and tonight we walk the freedom. So that's what they do. They kill the lamb, they spread the blood, they prepare the food, they pack their bags, and they sit around tables eating the food and waiting for the angel of death to come by. Can you imagine being in that place? Wondering if this is going to work. Sounds so ridiculous, doesn't it? God's going to kill the firstborn, and all we have to do is kill a lamb and spread the blood, and he passes us? It sounds too easy. Too good to be true. What if this doesn't work? D.A. Carson illustrates it as beautifully as anyone I've ever heard. In a short message that he did called ground of, The Ground of Human Assurance, I just want to read to you what he says because I can't do it justice myself. He says, picture two Jews by the name of Smith and Brown, remarkably Jewish names. (laughs) The day before the first Passover, they're having a little discussion in the land of Goshen, and Smith says to Brown, boy, are you a little nervous about what's going to happen tonight? Brown says, well, God has told us what to do through his servant Moses. You don't have to be nervous. Haven't you slaughtered the lamb? And daub the blood, the, two door po- the blood on the two doorposts and put the blood in the lintel? Haven't you done that? You're all ready and packed to go, aren't you? You're going to eat your whole Passover meal with your family, aren't you? Well, of course I've done that. I'm not stupid. But it's pretty scary when you think of all the things that have happened around here recently. You know, flies and river turning to blood. It's been awful. And now there's a threat of the firstborn being killed. And that's all right for you. You have three sons. I've only got one. I love my Charlie. The angel of death is passing through tonight. I know what God has said. I put the blood there, but it's pretty scary. I'll be glad when this whole thing is over. Some of you resonate with him? And the other one responds, bring it on. I trust the promises of God. D.A. Carson says, that night, the angel of death swept through the land. Which one lost his son? Which one lost his son? The answer, of course, is neither. Neither man lost his son. Because death doesn't pass over them on the ground of the intensity or the clarity of their faith exercised but on the ground of the blood of the lamb. That's what silences the accuser. 
The blood silences the accuser of the brothers as he accuses us before God. He silences our consciences when he accuses us directly. How many times do we writhe in agony asking if God can ever love us enough, if God can ever care for us enough after we have done such stupid, sinful, rebellious things after being Christians for so long? What are you going to say? Oh God, I tried hard, you know, I I did my best. It was a bad moment. No, no, no. I have other argument. I have no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. We overcome him by the blood of the lamb. There is the ground of all human assurance before God. There is the ground of our faith, not guaranteeing intensity of faith, for we are fickle. It's not the intensity of our faith, but the object of our faith that saves. They overcome him on the ground of the blood of the lamb. Do you get that, church? And it's not the intensity or the faithfulness or the strength of your faith that saves you. But it's the intensity, the faithfulness, the strength of him that saves you. We're saved by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus. And he keeps us safe. You get that. Can you rest in that grace today? Some of us have to rest in that today. This is the grace of God in Exodus, that our rescue, that our salvation, that our freedom is based on the blood of Christ and not on the works of man. And today, some of us need to rest in that. We need to sit in that. Your little faith needs to rest in that. Your fear of God not loving you needs to rest in that. Your worry of him not saving you needs to rest in that. Your shame of yesterday's sin needs to rest in that. So many of you I know, and I know well, and I know your stories well, and you wrestle day in and day out with the idea that God doesn't love you. You're Christians. You've proclaimed faith in Jesus. You've trusted him. You're not turning from him, but there's hardly a day that goes by that you actually walk in complete confidence that the God of this universe loves you. I know that about you because you've told us that. But he does. And there's many of you that wrestle day in and day out with whether or not you're actually saved because of sin in your life. His faithfulness is what saves us, not our perfection. It's his perfection, slaughtered on the cross for your imperfection. So may we rest in that today. Story number three. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. You're like, we're already in Exodus. Exodus, dramatic pause, 32. Dum, dum, dum. <coughs> Excuse me. We want to see the story of God's grace to his wayward people. To his wayward people. In Exodus 32, the Passover has happened. Those who put blood on their doorposts were not slaughtered. 
Their firstborn did not die. And just like God says, they were freed that day. They take their bags. They take the possessions of Egypt. For the people of Egypt were throwing their wealth at them as they walked out the doors, as God had said they would. And the people of Israel marched out of Egypt into freedom. They come to the Red Sea. And at the Red Sea, they're faced with this trap, it appears, that they can't get past the Red Sea, but Pharaoh changes his mind again and decides to come after them. And God shows his act of grandeur, we talked about last week, in slaughtering Pharaoh and his army at the sea, because God parts the sea, the people of Israel walk across on dry ground, and then Pharaoh and his armies come in after them, and God crashes the sea back upon them and kills them. The people of Israel have a whole chapter of singing a song, a song of worship, and, and then a couple days later, they're grumbling because they're hungry. They don't think God loves them because their stomachs are hungry. So God provides food, and they grumble, and they thank him for a moment, then they grumble again because it's not the type of food they want. So God provides more food, and then they grumble again because they're thirsty, and he provides water out of a rock. This is their story. Day in and day out, thank you, grumble, thank you, grumble. Faith, and failure, faith, and failure. And he leads them to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God shows up in his grandeur and he displays for them his, his grandeur and he, and he gives the commandments and the law. And in chapter 32, what we have is Moses has been on the mountain for some time now. He's been up there for a few weeks receiving the law and the rules of the Lord for his people to follow him in obedience. And the people begin to grow a little discontent, a little worried, a little anxious, a little fearful. They don't know what's happened to Moses. If he'll even come back, surely he's dead by now, up there by himself for a few weeks. And instead of just going, hey, we need a new leader because we think Moses might be dead, they do something far more drastic. Look with me, verses 1 through 6. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, now remember who Aaron is. He's, he's, he's their, their priest and Moses' brother who's been with Moses through the whole process of the plagues taking place. He was the spokesman that God gave Moses to speak to Pharaoh because Moses was afraid to talk, right? So this Aaron is not just like just some Joe. This is like their second in charge leader who's walking with Moses and been part of the miracles, the grandeur of God, and this should not happen with Aaron. And they said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. Which, by the way, just in case you're wondering, you can't make yourself gods. You can't create God. But, up, make us gods, that's the problem, who shall go before us. As for this Moses, this man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Verse 2, so Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their, car, their ears, their cars, in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. 
Instead of resting in the promises that he had made them, that God had made them, they decide because of their fears, because of their worries, because of their doubts, because of their anxieties over what has happened to Moses, they decide to turn to their own idols. And don't miss that they accredited their coming up out of Egypt to a man, by the way. We don't know what has happened to Moses who brought us up out of Egypt which we will see in a moment, clearly God has already taken credit for bringing them up out of Egypt. It was God's act of grandeur that brought them, and now they are crediting God's act of grandeur to a man, and that man has now seemingly let them down. And when their displayed, displaced worship for their freedom let them down, they turn to even more displaced figures of their worship, which will happen to you every time you give worship to whom it is not due. And so, they come to Aaron and they say, would, would you make us a, a, a statue God to worship? And he says, give me all your gold, give me all your silver, give me all your metals. And he takes them and he puts them in the fire. And then it says that he, he crafted them and he formed them and he made for them a golden calf. And then look what they say in, in verse Verse 4. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. How far they have fallen from God, Yahweh, who brought them up, to Moses brought us up, and now this statue brought us up. These are your gods who brought us up out of Egypt. Does that sound familiar to you, by the way? Because back in chapter 19, verse 4, and back in chapter 20, verse 2, this is what God said of himself, that he is the one who brought them up out of Egypt. They are attributing God's grandeur and God's grace to a piece of metal that they had built. This is not a a good thing. They turn then from that and they begin to even worship and party before this idol. Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They are celebrating and enjoying freedom before a statue that had nothing to do with their freedom. That's the object of their worship. In Acts 7, Stephen even says, According to this, Stephen's preaching in Acts 7 just before he's martyred. And Stephen says, in doing this, referring to the making of this calf, in doing this, they shoved Moses aside and returned to Egypt and their ways. But they shoved Moses, and not just the man, but they shoved the the man and the teaching that he had brought them of God, right? So in other words, they shoved God aside and returned to Egypt and its ways. Because in Egypt, their gods were statues, And so in the moment of freedom, they find themselves in a place of anxiety, fear, worry, doubt, and they turn back to the same gods that they had worshipped and they had followed in their years of captivity. And if you were with us when we journeyed through the whole book of Hebrews forever, it, it reminded us over and over and over again to not go back to Egypt, but to pursue the promised land. Go to the promised land. Keep chasing God. Follow God, turn to God, go after God. Don't go back to the idols of Egypt over and over again. Hebrews called us to that for the sake of our preservation. But that's exactly what they've done. So let me just ask you, church, have you been there? 
Have you been to this place where they have gone? Have fear, uncertainty, doubt, worry seeped into your heart and mind? And the next thing that you know, you're turning to your idols? I mean, sure, your, your idols are not statues, most likely. I've had Buddhist friends whose idols are statues, but most likely, you gathered here with us today, that's not your idol. But our culture has them, doesn't it? Our, our community in the Northland has them. This church has its own specific idols that are common to the people of our church. We turn to things like money or material possessions or recognized positions, promotions, leisure, sex, acceptance on social media. And some of you have even what you might think are moral idols. You don't consider them idols because they're morally good, like family or your spouse or knowledge, theological expertise, or ministry success. Even things that appear good, but we put our worship, our trust, our faith in them rather than the one who has set us free. Have you found yourself there? We, like the people of Israel, turn our worship from the eternal God of grandeur to fading items of delight. The eternal God of grandeur to fading items of delight. And there, before these items, we prostitute ourselves in worship and celebration, trying to silence our fears and our doubts with our idols. That's where the people of Israel have found themselves. Verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. God God tributes the people to Moses now. They're Moses' people. Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Say, whoa, where'd the grace go? God looks at his rebellious people who become rebellious so quickly. He goes, man, they're stiff-necked. Moses, get out of the way that my wrath may destroy them, and I'm going to start over with you. You. You've been faithful. I'll start over with you. Verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. And the tablets were the work of God, and the writings, the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. 
And he took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Moses is on the mountain. God says, I'm going to destroy them with my wrath and start over with you. We skip through this part for the sake of time, but Moses has a dialogue with God. And Moses pleads with God, intercedes with God to not kill the people of Israel. And he does so by reminding him of his promise to make them a great nation. So God withholds his wrath of destroying them all. Right? We In this picture, by the way, we get a shadow of Christ as our intercessor. Who stands before God today making intercession on our behalf when we rebel. You remember that from Hebrews if you journeyed with us through the book? And then Moses comes back down the mountain. And when he comes back down the mountain, his anger is righteously boiling up. The people are not only, have not only created a calf, they're not only living in doubt and fear, they've created a calf and they're singing and worshiping it, celebrating it. So Moses crashes the tablets down, throws them, and then he melts down the calf grinds it up, pours it in water, and makes them drink it. In my household, as a kid, this was like washing your mouth out with soap. Commentators don't exactly even know why. Maybe it was to make them taste the bitterness of what they had done. But it's part of the punishment. And then we see this take place. Verse 21, Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. Now notice Aaron's response. Moses turns to him, what have you done in making this? And Aaron does not take responsibility for his sin. There's no responsibility taken by Aaron. Instead, he points all the blame to the people. Does this sound anything like Genesis 3? He's like, you know these people. Man, they're terrible people. They're the worst. They made me do this. They gave me everything, and here's what I did. I threw it into a fire. Verse 24, so I said to them, let anyone who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it into the fire, and out came this. This is an excuse you expect out of your six-year-old. Those of you who have children, you know there's some ridiculous excuses they give you. You're like, that doesn't even make sense. Not to mention, it's just an outright lie. Like, lest you go, well, maybe that is what happened. You know, some could be. Some magical power made that happen. Some satanic power made it just pop out. Maybe he's not lying. Well, back in verse 4, Excuse me, um, yeah, verse 4, he received the gold from their hand, fashioned it with a graving tool, and made a golden calf. Aaron fashioned it. Not poof, but chisel. Slowly and surely fashioned them a calf. But then his form of taking responsibility for his sin is, it's their fault. By the way, I did this and it just poofed out. I had nothing to really do with it. So then, verse 25. Moses doesn't even respond to him, by the way. 
Verse 25, and when Moses saw the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and they said to him, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. So 3,000 of them die. You say, well, who? Is it just like anyone? Is it just like random killings? We don't know. It doesn't give us any more information. All we know is that life had to be given for the idolatry of this people. Life had to be taken for the idolatry of these people. Verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves a God, gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made the calf the one that Aaron had made. So after the slaying of 3,000 people, Moses goes to the people and says, you've sinned greatly. Now I must go back up the mountain. I must meet with God. I want you to see four phrases that are said here between verses 30 and 35. First, he says, perhaps I can make atonement. Perhaps. Moses' belief, his faith that God will save them, has questioned. Perhaps I can meet with God and make atonement for your sins, that you will not all be wiped out. Secondly, but now, if you will forgive their sin. Moses' conversation with God, if you will forgive their sin. He carries that out and says, if not, blot me out. Moses here again is a shadow of of Christ offering himself as a sacrifice for their sin. And God's response to Moses is, no, I will kill those who sinned. Praise the Lord, that wasn't his response with Christ. Fourthly, the Lord sent a plague for their sin. Say, Pastor, how is this a story of grace? How is this a story of grace? It's a beautiful story of grace, if you will. In one sense, it's a story of grace for God did not wipe out all the people of Israel. But in his faithfulness to his promise, left a remnant. Like he would over and over and over again 
when his people rebel and sin. Every time he comes to judge, every time he comes to, to bring correction and discipline upon his people, he leaves a remnant of his people that they might reestablish their worship of God and re-engage in the mission of God to take Christ to the nations. He's faithful to that because that was his promise. So we see his grace in that. But church, let's not miss the grace of God in the person and the work of Jesus in this story. Because in this story, the phrases we just looked at, perhaps I can make atonement. Today, on this side of Christ and his death on the cross, there is no perhaps. But now, if you will forgive them. On this side of Jesus, those who have trusted him, there is no if he will forgive you. If not, blot me out, make me the sacrifice. He has already chosen one as the sacrifice. Christ. And the Lord sent a plague for their sin. From this day forward, from the point of Christ forward, there will never again be wrath of God poured out upon his people for their sin. It is a story pointing us to the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. What I hope that we take from this as a church today is that in Jesus, we do not have to fear God's wrath when we sin because In Jesus, we have a better intercessor than Moses who pleads on our behalf. And in Jesus, we have the one who offered himself as a sacrifice to please the wrath of God. And in Jesus, there is no perhaps in making atonement, for atonement has already been made. And in Jesus, there is no if you will forgive their sin, for our sin has already been forgiven. So Christian, where you sit today, in your sin, in your brokenness, in your failure to remain faithful to the covenant that he's laid before you. In the midst of breaking promise after promise that you will follow and obey Jesus. With whatever sin you committed yesterday, for whatever sin you committed this morning, weighing upon your mind and your heart in this moment, rest in this. There is no more wrath for Jesus has made atonement and there is no if he will forgive you for he has already forgiven you. And Christian, if we would grasp that, if we would get that, if we would hold on to that and believe that, it would change everything about our relationship with our Lord. When Sam stands and says, today we confess to a father, not a judge, it would be transforming for us. Because he's not waiting to pour out wrath and condemnation, but he's waiting to offer acceptance and forgiveness like the father who ran to the prodigal son. It's not even your broken, messed up image of a father who was rough and gruff and had standards you couldn't live up to. It's a father who embraces and gives grace. It would change the way that we love God. It would change the way that we think about ourselves when we grasp the identity that we've been given as sons and daughters, that there is no more wrath for us, but now we're his children and that will never be taken away. changes the way that you'll love others. Because when you really grasp that, there's no greater thing you can tell or share with somebody else than that truth. That they don't have to wake up tomorrow morning wondering if the God of the universe will accept them or love them. They can wake up in assurance that he has and does because of Jesus.
transforms our life. We'll grasp this. Transforms our life. We will grasp this. For the sake of being faithfully honest through the text, through all of Scripture, we'll just mention this. This is not an excuse for sinfulness. Scriptures never allow that. This is not an excuse to go on living in sin for the grace of God won't turn to wrath for us. Instead, it is the means by which and the purpose for which we strive to kill and destroy our idols as Moses did the calf. That we burn down, tear down, grind up whatever idol we're holding onto and we drink the bitterness of that idol so that we will no longer go back to that idol but may follow Christ in faithfulness. May we strive for that as well. And if you're here and you're not a believer, you're not a follower of Jesus, may the grace of God to broken, jacked up, unfaithful men and women like myself, like those who make up Emmaus Church, may his faithfulness to save us, to redeem us, and to keep us despite our filthy sin lead you to love and trust Jesus. May he save you today. Let's pray. And Jesus, I pray that you would encourage our hearts with the truth of your word today. That you would draw people to trust you and that you would draw those who have trusted in you to rest in you. That your grace displayed to your people throughout centuries and generations might be embraced and believed and held and cherished by us here today. May it cause us as we leave here to love you more. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.